Let's start with a word of prayer, and we'll get into our lesson tonight. Father, thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to come together and fellowship and, and spend some time with each other, and it's really good to get a, a break from this world uh, to be with other believers that are like-minded. So thank you for that opportunity, Father. And Father, as we study tonight, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Help, them, help us to understand your word, to apply it, and live it out before you. We pray now in Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Uh, we're on the uh, part in Satanology called the cosmos, which is what he rules. It, he is the god of this world, the prince of this world, and um, he has uh, illegally usurped Adam and Eve and has become the god of this world. And this, this world system, not the earth per se, but the world system of the governments of the world and the peoples of the world are actually his. He controls the kingdoms of this world. And remember, he tried to tempt the Lord by giving him and offering the kingdoms of this world if the Lord would just bow a knee to him. Remember that. Jesus passed the test, obviously, and knew that in order to get the kingdoms of this world, you must, uh, he must die on the cross, not only for our sins, but to redeem humanity and to get the kingdoms back under his throne, the second Adam. And so the cosmos is a big deal. And to understand it helps us understand how to uh, do spiritual warfare, how to fight it, to know the tactics and know what's going to be thrown against us. So this is the key in understanding Satanology is to understand the cosmos. Okay, so um, I just I think we covered this area, I think. The cosmos is fully evil, does not go God or the Messiah. It fornicates, it's an enmity with God, it's corrupt, it's defiled and has the spirit of Antichrist in it. Okay, so I think that's where we left off, I think. And so the next area I want to get to, oh, no, we did this, huh? Areas of temptation, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. I think we did that, right? Yes, okay. Okay, so next point that we want to discover is the desires of the cosmos is, uh, is lust for wealth. That's number one. So one of the temptations will be for people is that um, once they, the, the cosmos gives them a little bit, they want more of it. And whether that's through money, power, prestige, wealth, whatever it might be. And so the big issue, obviously, in temptation will be to want wealth. Now, here's my question. Is there anything wrong with wanting wealth? Not necessarily, but you have to know when you cross the line and what the, why you, you are gaining the wealth and what reasons for that. The motivation is the key in understanding about attaining wealth. Now, if your idea of getting wealth, I'm not talking about being rich, but obtaining money, obtaining things, is to provide for your family, that's perfectly appropriate, right? But let me ask you this. How much... Is too much. How would you know? Because a lot of people will claim that, well, I'm doing all this for my family. Um, and, and, you know, so this is why I have to do X, Y, and Z. This is why I got to do this, because I'm providing for my family. Okay? So where is the line? When it becomes your God? Okay. Think about it more than God. You prioritize it more than God. What's that? 
You ditch your family for the money. Yeah, that's a good uh, uh, way is that you're going to spend more time working than you are with your family, obviously. But the excuse will be, well, I'm doing it for them. I'm making them more money so they can go to college and I got to pay bills. You know how expensive it is to live in California. Uh huh. So then before you know it, you can cross that line in thinking you're justified in doing what you're doing, but now you've become a workaholic. Okay, that's good. Anything else that you would signal that you've went too far? When your material possessions take you away from church, God, Jesus. Good. You become Scrooge, right? Tight. You don't spend anything. And that's a sign of, of, of covetousness, too, because, you know, you can acquire wealth to be a spend, uh, you know, just crazy spending, or you can acquire wealth to big, build bigger barns. And that becomes a problem, too. So one of them is, is, is irresponsible with wealth. The other one is stingy. Tighter than bark on a tree, I guess you want to say, right? You can become that way. And people do, right? You've seen them. Um, okay, so, so back to this, this issue that, that you pointed out about um, when the material possessions start taking you away from God, what would, what would be an example of that? Golf clubs? Hey, be careful. Be careful. You have to be very careful when you talk about that. You might blaspheme tonight. Yeah. So, you know, the problem is you, you, you see me on Sunday mornings at the golf course, I must be um, doing something wrong, right? Uh, if my golf game gets in the way of my profession. But... Um, I think what you have to realize is that, like, like say you, you, you get uh, enough money to be able to do an activity or, or whatever it might be. If that money continues to be a habit to where, where we're always going to the concert down in L.A. on Sunday, or we're always going to the beach because we have this new beach house that we have, and we're always going to the beach on the weekend, or we have the ability to travel now, and we have a lot of money, and so we're free, we're going to go do that. Or, um, you know, I bought a boat and we have to be on the lake on Sunday and the only time it's open is on the lake. Or whatever, you, whatever you put money into and then that device or, I don't know, what you want to call it, house, boat, car, material possession, <clears throat> if that starts taking you away from your normal routine of your spirituality, of coming to church on Sunday, even on Wednesday night if you want to count that, um, just your daily devotional in life, then you got a problem, right? So, but Satan makes it to the point to, to say to you, hey man, you've earned it, you worked hard, look at all those years, you were trapped, you couldn't leave, and now you have a little money, now you can go travel and uh, go see the world now. But at the same time then, you're, it pulls you away from God, then that's not what God wants. And that's obvious, but it seems obvious to me, it seems obvious to you, but why do so many people do it? I mean, we had, we, the last church I had, we had an RV club, and the RV club um, had money, had their RVs, and they took off for six months. I, I don't know how that fits into spirituality. If, if now I'm going to reach my golden years, and I'm just going to not go to church for six months, 
or whatever and travel. I get that, the traveling thing, but at some point you've got to come back, right? You just don't perpetually become a traveler. And I'm not trying to hem anyone in on their retirement or anything like that, but I don't understand the idea that, okay, I turn 65 and then I'm done with church. I raised my kids, I put them in church, I did what I needed to do, now it's my time. Um, I, don't, I don't understand that quite, quite enough, I guess. I don't know, I, it doesn't make sense to me. It's, it's abnormal thinking to me. But um, riches, wealth, all those kinds of things can take you away. There's just no doubt about it. And actually, I think sometimes people don't know where that line is. And uh, we've had people say, man, I, I, you, know, they, they, you know, they were in leadership with us. And, and this, is, this, is, this is amazing. I want you to hear this, okay? We've had people in leadership high positions of leadership here at Rock Harbor. And they would start missing a lot. I mean, a lot, a lot. Like half the year, okay? And they're deacons. I don't understand how a deacon can, can think they can be in a position of a deacon and be gone half the year because, oh, when we're, they were confronted... Why are you gone so much? Well, our lives are pretty stressful. And everyone else's isn't? Yeah, so, yeah, we, we you know, that's why we, uh, we're gone on the weekends on trips because we're just kind of chilling and, and relaxing and stuff. You're a deacon. You're gone half the year. It doesn't make sense. But in their minds, it was perfectly acceptable. Does that blow you away? I can't believe that I'm even having that conversation. And I end up being the one accused of legalism. Because I just expect you to be a little bit more than half the time here at church because you're a leader in the church and not, you know, going and to Pastor Rubbles and tasting wine. Like every other weekend. But I get called a legalist because they're antinomian. Let me show you, continue how it works. You have enough money and you have to put your kid in club sports because you got to compete. Club sports takes a lot of money. It sure does. Gone on the weekends, hotels, things of that nature. You're gone all the time. I've had people who are teachers in our church. I said, hey, man, you're never here. We need you to teach. You're not here. Well, you know, we got this soccer thing going on. We got this club thing going on. We got this going on. We got that going on, volleyball. And I had one deacon tell me that his girl was playing in Anaheim every Sunday. And this was a January month. And he told me, look, hey, we got this thing in Anaheim on Sunday. We got to do it for my girl. She's going to be a volleyball star, queen of volleyball, whatever. And I'm all right, man, so what's going to happen? Are you going to be gone a couple weeks? No, I'm going to be gone from January to June. Every Sunday? Yeah, well, you can't be a deacon. What? I can't be a deacon. I just told you what I'm going to be doing. Yeah, you're gone for six months. What's wrong with you? How can you hold that position? Or I want to, I want to teach the youth. Really? Then come at least more than a fourth of the year. Well, we're doing this with our kids. This is our family time on Sunday morning. But no, Sunday is God time. But you are out on the soccer field. 
and you want to teach? Oh, you're a legalist, Brandon. Do you see the kind of mentality that we deal with all the time? People are the exceptions to the rule. People, because of the, 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 the lust for wealth. Now, you're going to say, well, I don't understand the lust for wealth as it, as it terms as, in terms of uh, having to do with kids in club sports. Well, the guy who was putting his daughter in club volleyball that played every Sunday from January to June in some volleyball thing in Anaheim, you know what the, wealth, the lust of the wealth was in that situation? You can take a guess. What does every parent who does that want? A scholarship. Thank you very much. It is for wealth. Again, it's not to be rich. Don't understand that. It's to gain something that this world gives you. And a worldly advantage. Well, thank God, if they get a scholarship, I won't have to pay for it. Well, good luck with that one. About 1% of the high schoolers get a scholarship. Everyone else has to pay. So you're going to sacrifice your child on the altar of volleyball and take your child away from Christ so she can get some money? I think that's a bad deal, in my opinion. Because I can tell you, where are they now? Where are they now? Are, uh, is that daughter uh, uh, this superstar beach volleyball guy? No. Zero happened. Zero happened. You get what I'm saying? So it's, it's not just I'm, I'm seeking wealthy because I want to drive a Bentley. It's I want a worldly advantage that I want my kid to have. And that becomes a problem. And then I get accused when I say, well, you're only here a fourth of the time. You, how, why would you even think you can teach? In fact, that's insane. But I'm the legalist. Perfect. We're not the right church for you. Do you see where I'm going with this? I'm not crazy. What wealth does to people or the access to have that, to have some freebie, to have a scholarship, to have that. Do you see what it does to people? They lose their minds. They just lose it. That's satanic. That is satanic, guys. It's idolatry. You better believe it. If God wants you to have something, he will give it to you, period. End of story. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. If he wants you to have something, he'll make sure it gets in your hand. If he doesn't, you won't get it. He doesn't want spoiled brats. So he will never, never do that to you. So again, this whole idea of the lust for wealth, it's in the American church, obviously. Not just for recreation, for what they want from their kids, it's a big problem in the United States. Security apart from God. This can dovetail right into wealth, obviously, right? I want security for my family. I want security for my, my job. I want security for my kids and all this other stuff. Security, security, security. But the world's security is different than God's security. It's a false security. And like I mentioned in the... Uh, the wealth idea of the guy building bigger barns, the reason he's hoarding wealth is that, that wealth becomes his security. And I have watched this in my own ministry of people hoarding money. Okay? 
I'm not saying being frugal, because they say they're frugal when, when really they're a cheapskate, okay? They're a cheapskate. But why are people cheapskates? It's, well, they're unlimited. In- no, no, that's not really the store. They're unlimited income. Why won't they tip correctly? Why, 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 why not? Why, why don't they tip correctly? Christians are the worst tippers. They'll leave a dollar in a track for a $50 meal. I don't get it. I don't get it. A dollar and a, a track? You've just messed up your witness. What's going on? If, if you don't have the money to go out to eat and, and tip appropriately, you shouldn't be going out. Because at the end of the day, you reward service. Yes, if it's bad service, I get it and all that stuff. But they say in the restaurant industry that Sunday afternoon, that crowd, and you know where that crowd's coming from, are the worst tippers ever. All, this is across the board all through the United States, and it's Christians. Why is that? Why, why are we not the most generous types of people? Now, again, if you, I'm not saying if you don't have the money, then go eat a bologna sandwich at home. I don't know. But don't go across the street over here to, uh, you know, Stuart Anderson's have a big old steak, and, and, and you walk away with a $100 bill, and you give a $5 tip. I don't get that. I don't get that. But I do if I understand if someone's using money for security. They will become tight. They won't spend. Again, I'm not talking about if you don't have the budget money. I'm talking that you do have the money, but you refuse. Now, here's the funny thing that God will do when you start to hoard money. When you start to hoard money, Anything you do, God will remove the pleasure of doing that thing from you. You'll get your money. You will have your barns big enough, but you will lose the ability to enjoy it. Now, that's probably, that's a, probably one of the worstest, worst curses that you could possibly imagine is to acquire what you really wanted and then you not enjoy it and can't enjoy it. God takes the ability to enjoy it away from you. That's scary. But that's what happens when you start hoarding. The idea that what comes into your hand should be as easy for God to remove it that easy. And, and, and again, um, we're not talking about you can't have good things and nice things. You can. I'm just talking about does those good things and nice things distract from your relationship? If they do, that's a problem. It really is a problem. People's careers and status become an issue. So, you know, they, and because that, uh, security is their main issue, not so much money, but security, they look to go up the ranks in their, in their work and get higher positions of authority. And a lot of times it's not about money, it's about the authority, because the more authority you have, the more secure they think they are. They don't realize it can come crashing down in one day. And so they're on this ongoing quest for more and more and more positions of power and authority. Well, the problem is you have to pay a price to get those positions of authority. And to get that kind of security, you're going to have to compromise somewhere along the line your Christian values in order to get those higher positions. 
you will, you will have to give up more family time for those higher positions. I, I, used, I used to talk to some of my buddies that I went to school with in New York, and uh, a lot of those guys that I played ball with, they all went to Wall Street, because that's the easiest way to make millions of dollars by the age of 40. So a lot of them went that route. But the hours they were pulling, when I talked to them, they were pulling about 100 hours a week. They slept in their office. Yeah, they slept in their office, and they... they you know, they're working for Goldman Sachs, they're working for Merrill Lynch, and they're working for high investment firms like that. And um, they all became millionaires by the age of 40, all of them who did that. But not one of them was married. Not one of them had a family. And at 40, all they were were millionaires who were alone. That's all they were. And so half of their life was wasted working for Merrill Lynch in an office to get security. And they have the security, now what are you going to do? You have no one to share it with. You wasted your time. So that's where you got the, the idea of security apart from God. Security can, apart from God can also lead into getting extreme on provisions. I need to make this point. We need to be prepared we need to be prepared as much as we can. I get it. But you can cross the line. You, you got to be very, very careful. Because how much is enough, again, in terms of preparing, uh, preparing, okay? So you have these people that are in Montana or Idaho or whatever, and they call them preppers, okay? They believe they're going to, like, survive the seven-year tribulation all the way through, okay? It's just, it's insane. They have went so far... I believe that they have went so far, they have crossed the line where they're not trusting in God's provision, but their own. If you think you, can, you have enough supplies to survive a nuclear holocaust for the next 10 years, you've, we've went overboard. Just a little bit. Okay? Are you to prepare for hard times? Of course. Do you need to have some food on hand? Of course. Do you need to have water? Of course. You have ammo and guns? Of course. But what is enough? Let's keep getting more. More. The funny thing is, if, if, if truly, the, like the book, The Day After happens, you ever read that book, The Day After? Talks to, talks to you, talks to uh, the story, I, get, I think it's an MB, M, what is it, M? EMP, there it is, I got the word. An EMP goes off, destroys all the electrical, turns the United States back to like 1875, and then chaos erupts, right, in the streets. The thing about it is the people that were having that, that had all that stuff, their houses were ransacked and looted, and all that stuff they had stored was stolen from them. I think Jesus said something about that. They have treasures in heaven where moth and rust, uh, and where thieves do not break in and steal. I'm all for getting prepared for living through hard times, but you got to understand where you cross that line into I'm providing my own security versus I'm trusting in God's security. Because this world will do that. And then desires material goods and not spiritual things. Okay? Now, this is a thing that Satan will use against believers because they want the finer things of life, and I get that, and that's, it's, it's tangible. You can see it, touch it, and all that. And, and so here's what I want to contrast. So Satan says, if you work hard in his system, he'll reward you with material goods. That's what his system does. It rewards you with material goods. 
God's system says, I will reward you at the end. I will not reward you instantaneously. I will reward you at the end. And some of my rewards, I will give you clues about. So some of the rewards will be, uh, you will be a pillar in the temple of God. You will eat from the tree of life. You will have a new name. You have a new stone with your name on it that only Messiah and him know. You will serve him. You will drink from the fountain of the water of life. Um, yeah, new body. Yeah, that's a good one. Big time, right? You got that. No more curse. No more sin, death, pain, sorrow. No more crying. Okay, so you get, you get, the, you get the hint. So you've got God's rewards on this side, and you have Satan's rewards on this side, which are instantaneous and creature comforts. Okay, I'll give you physical goods, material goods, if you, do, if you obey the system. In God's systems, you get spiritual rewards at the end in the next life. And here's the, you see the problem here that people start having, that they do not like that the, there's the delay of the gratification. The delay of the gratification. And they also do not like that they cannot conceptualize the rewards that God is saying. I mean, what does it mean to eat from the tree of life? What does it mean to drink from the fountain of water? What, what is, in our world, it doesn't mean anything because that place is so different than ours. And so when Satan comes in front of people and say, look, it's instantaneous right here. You could have a house, you could have a car, you could have this, you could have money, whatever. It's right there in front of you. And it makes sense in this world. But what God offers doesn't make sense in this world. It doesn't apply to this world. So everything he gives only applies into the next. And you can see where the problem starts happening. Because if you're immature, those things that God promises you in the future don't appeal to you. Look, let, let's, let's, let's give you an example. Let's say you're a manager or a supervisor or whatever of employees in whatever company you work for, okay? And you know as a manager and a supervisor, your job is filled with headaches all the time because you're, you're dealing with people, right? And your job would be a lot easier if there was no people involved. This is what it is. And you're constantly having these headaches because of the drama and this and that, and you're having to manage people and yeah, you're getting paid for it, but you say, you say, you know what? I might as well be on the conveyor belt spinning, spinning bolts because I wouldn't have these headaches. So then the Bible comes and you come to church and you're told you can rule and reign with Christ. And someone's saying, I don't want to rule anybody. I'm done. I don't, I don't want to rule anybody. I've had enough in this life of ruling over people and it makes me sick. You're telling me that's a reward? I'm trying to escape that. You see how that works? People, so I'm telling you, 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 the thing is, people will interpret those rewards in their own context. That's why it doesn't appeal to them. So if I tell you, hey, you're going to have a new name, you're like, so what? I don't even know my real name. I have all these aliases. Um, and it doesn't equate. And so this is why the, uh, the concept of rewards are lost because people won't contextualize them in the right context and won't understand the deeper meaning of it in, in terms of spiritual value. So here's the thing. 
the only way to fight against the lust for wealth, the security apart from God, the material goods, the only way to do that is to value the system and the rewards that God gives. You have to value the currency of heaven. Otherwise, if you don't, you'll, you will succumb to the temptation of the currency of this world. That's the problem. This is why the concept of worldly Christians is so prevalent in the New Testament. Because they won't make the switch to value the new system. They value the old system. Now, the old system, it, it, let's just say this for us in America. What is the old system? The system we've been raised on is the American dream. Okay? I'm going to go to school, I'm going to go to college, I'm going to get a good-paying job, and I'm going to retire at 65, my kids are going to go to college, and my life's, my life's going to be a happy, happy time, and then I'll die at the old age of 110. Right? And that's the American dream, where, you know, uh, and, and I'm going to do a little traveling, I'm going to do that. I don't know how the American dream fits into Christianity. I, I'm, I, I'm not, don't, don't get me wrong, this is not an anti-American attack. This is the system that we're under, the system, okay? And I, I don't, I don't, we have a retirement in this world, but there's no retirement per se and you're serving Christ. You never end ser- in, in your service to Christ. In fact, you go on from this life and you serve at a greater level. You never stop serving. There's no retirement. And so what you start realizing is the values of this world come from Satan. But the values from heaven obviously are different, and I have to get my mind wrapped around that. So think about this. Just as an example, what happens when most people retire? They work at Walmart? Thank, thank you for shopping at Walmart. Scan your, let me see your tag at, at Costco. And then you put an X on there. Okay, I checked his groceries. Is that what, that's what it's about, you know? Um, but see, the, the idea is, oh, you're going to, you're, you're in the American dream, you're going to retire and you're going to have fun and it's going to be great. The problem is most people, when they hit retirement, they start having uh, physical problems, right? And instead of spending their every day at the office, they're spending every day at the doctor's office. That's their whole week. Okay? But see, you were sold at a dream that, you know, at 65, you can, you can retire and everything's going to be great. It's going to be like you're 21 and you can go take on the world. Uh-uh. You start having health problems. And the problem is a lot of people, when they retire, they lose their identity and they don't know what to do with themselves. And they get lost and then they really start having physical problems and they go downhill from there. Why? Because they're, they're involved in this world and they don't have anything to do, but they should actually transfer and realize, wait a second, in the Christian world, there's all kinds of things to do. There's a lot of ways I involve myself in ministry and get active and do all kinds of things. Now I'm freed from the secular job. Now I can work for the Lord. That should be the mentality, but it's not, right? It's, it's usually not. Now I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to the choir because a lot of you are doing that right now. You're more active than you ever have been great, but people won't make the switch because in their minds, I'm supposed to be retired. I'm supposed to be relaxing. 
I'm supposed to be taking it easy. And the Lord is saying to Caleb and Joshua, 80, 80 years old, take the mountain. Go take the mountain. You're not done. And so you, that, that's just an example. Or let me give you another example from, from my life. The concept of this world is you go to school, go to college, and get a good job. That's America, okay? That's the mentality. And in the kind of job you get, it has to be high paying. And we don't care if you like it or not, it's just got to be high paying. And you got to go to school. You got to go to college. That is a lie. That comes from Americana. That actually comes from our government. That you should go to school, go to college, and then get a good job so you can pay your taxes. And people buy into this, right? That, that, that's the secret of success. Education, college. What if college is not cut out for you, though? You're going to do something that you're not fit for? You see, the problem is the, the world system has a mold, and it wants you to mold itself into that and say that's the meaning of success if you mold. God's saying, no, I have an individual plan for every one of them. Some might be education, some may not be. I might have them in a different direction. I might have them do this. I might have them do that based on how I created them. But the system puts everybody into a mold. So I'll give you an example. So I put my kids at BCHS, which is a mistake. I would never do this again. I'll tell you right now, I can't stand BCHS. They're lower than lower. The, the, the leaders running BCHS are losers. End of story. I say that publicly. I'll say it on the radio too. They're losers. They're, I don't even know if they're Christians, guys. Anyway, I've, I had made the mistake of sending my kids to BCHS. I'll never do that again. But here's what I found out. <clears throat> the concept, when, it, when, we, when we, my, my older boy was a freshman, we had this interview there. And, you know, they're going to interview the parents, which, you know, I thought, I thought maybe they would have some high degree of, okay, explain how you were saved, explain the atonement, the propitiation, explain... <laughs> explain uh, superlapsarianism, explain dispensationalism. Wasn't like that. I thought it was a whole thing of like vetting parents out of the school who are not believers. I was so wrong and so naive to think that. It's all about money. Thank you. It's all about money. Okay, so here's what happened. So I get in this interview with uh, this gal, and she's interviewing me and the kid and my wife, and Oh, yeah, this is great. Uh, we, we love Jesus. We love Jesus. Anybody that tells you they love Jesus, they don't love Jesus, okay? <laughs> you don't need to tell me you love Jesus if you love Jesus. I'll see it in your actions. But we love Jesus here. So, so she goes uh, to my son, the older one, he goes, she goes, so what do you want to do after college? Uh, you know, or, sorry, not, sorry, not college, but after high school. Because, you know, we have, we have some kids going to SMU. We have some people going to uh, Yale. We have some kids going to Stanford. Some kids, blah, 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 blah. Just naming all the, the wonderful colleges, secular colleges. I said, stop right there. I said, I don't buy into that. I, in fact, I don't want my kid going to any of those colleges you just named. Because I'm raising my kid in a Christian way. I don't want him going to Cornell. I don't want him going to Berkeley or USC or UC. I don't want him going there because I don't want him screwed up. I don't want to take away everything I put into this kid to be taken away from some pencil neck professor that's going to mess with my, mind, my kid's mind. 
no, thank you. And she was like, And I could tell the problem with her is she's in the system. She thinks the next step is to go to UCLA. That's what her mindset is. And I'm like, I'm breaking the system. He might want to be uh, doing the suction out of, uh, of, uh, of the porta potties. Maybe that's what God called him to do. And if God called him to run the suction out of the porta potties, then he's going to run the suction. And she doesn't understand what I'm talking about. And so they think I'm strange. But what's the point? You see where I was going with it? She is in this mindset of this is what you need to do to be successful. I don't give a rip. I don't care if my kid goes to Stanford. I don't care. He's going to come out dumber if he goes there anyway. He does. You graduate somebody from a four-year uh, Ivy League, they'll come out stupider. They're just dumb. They're stupid. But what is it? The idea is you have to break out of the system, take a step back, and understand what is God doing in his individual kid's life. And he might be, you know, the idea of training up a child in the way he should go. Find the way he's going or she's going and train him up that way. And that's the way they should be. And that's where you encourage them to go. But if I play the game, what am I after? I'm after money in the game. The whole idea is to get a great job, great paying job. And you might, you'll, and what is it? I think 70, 80% of the people hate their job. But they do it because of money. I don't want to live that way. Do you? You want to work a job you hate? That's crazy. God never intended that. Okay, so at the end of the day, I, I'm doing that contrast so you can see. So, so then I'm, I'm looking at God's system and I'm like, I don't know what this idea, concept means of eating from the tree of life again. I don't know how that benefits me here and now. Well, it doesn't. It doesn't. That's the whole point. And if you try to make that concept work in this life, it will not appeal to you. It only appeals in the spiritual world in the next life. And you say, well, I still don't understand that. Well, here's the thing. Oh, good. Because that's why God wants you to take it by faith. That's why he didn't tell you all that's involved. Because he says, trust me. When you get here, you're going to want to have this. You're going to want to rule and reign. You're going to want to shine. You're going to want to eat from the tree of life. You're going to want that new stone. You're going to want my new name on you. And you're going to want a new name that I give you. Because that's the currency of heaven. And, I, and God's just telling you, this is what I consider important. And you better want what's important. So what do I do? I trust by faith. If I trust by faith in that reward, then I can let go of the rewards of that Satan's offering. That's how Jesus passed the temptations, right? Yes, he, it proved he was sinless and he couldn't sin, but look, Satan's gonna say, look, you need provision, you need bread, don't you need to wanna eat? What did Messiah say? Man does not what? Live on bread alone, but on every word of, the, word of God, right? I'll offer you the kingdoms without sacrifice. Can't do that. You must suffer first, and then you're rewarded. That's the pattern. Throw yourself off a temple, 
and he'll, his angels will catch you, right? Tempt God into, do, into rescuing you from stupid things that you do and, you, and, 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 and then obviously lose rewards for doing that, but at the same time bring discredit to God by, by putting yourself in positions like that. Okay, so Messiah understood. We don't do that. My, the, my father's kingdom, its rules are different. When they arrested him, and he, and he told Peter, don't you think I can call in 12 legions of angels in, this, in the realm that I come from? I'm letting this happen. They have no control. So this is part of understanding, knowing the, 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 the desires of the cosmos and how to, how to stop that uh, from entering. It's a big temptation. There's no doubt about it, that, but we have to deal with it. Okay, another thing. The cosmos is impotent as far as spiritual things are concerned. The cosmos does not know the Father, and it is without God. The cosmos does not know God and does not hear him. So when we're in the cosmos, in this world system, there is no aspect of God. Now, I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, well, there's people out there in the cosmos that say they believe in God. Yeah, but what God? Right? What God are they talking about? It's not the God of the Bible, because the Bible is telling you that in the cosmos, there's no, the one true God is not there. Jesus, the real Jesus, is not there. But who is there? The fake gods, the fake Jesus, the counterfeit Jesus, the revolutionary Jesus, right? The Mormon Jesus, Jehovah Witness Jesus, the Seventh-day Adventist Jesus. That, that's who's in the cosmos. And that's what the cosmos will allow. See, the cosmos, if you practice your Christianity as a heretic, you'll be completely welcomed into the cosmos, just like, you know, you see these churches rolling out LGBT pastors and transgender pastors. They're completely welcomed in the cosmos. They're not going to get any pushback. And if you come up with a Jesus that's not the real Jesus, that's an all-loving Jesus with no justice or righteousness, that's a Jesus that is acceptable in the cosmos. This is why worldly believers go that way. But when you get a true believer telling who really Jesus is, who the Bible is, what it says, then the cosmos hates you for it, and the people of the cosmos will hate you. So you get the pushback, because there's nothing there. You cannot find God in the cosmos. You just won't. He's not there in it. That's a, that's a, a satanic system. So the problem is, as you can see, people, unfortunately, will search the cosmos for him but they can't find him there. All they find is counterfeits. So how do you search for the real one true God? If he's not in the cosmos, where do you find him? You know how people, you know, you'll have, you know, they sing these John Denver songs and they're looking for meaning in life and, and stuff like that, you know, and, they're trying to find meaning. That's what I'm talking about. They try to find meaning in life through this world and through experiences and through money or through pleasures. It really is like uh, Solomon in Ecclesiastes where he tried out everything, right? He's trying to find meaning in life through these things and it doesn't give him meaning. That's what people do. They spend their wills looking for God, trying to find meaning in life in the cosmos and they can't find it. That's why they end up coming up empty or even committing suicide. So at the end of the day, where do you find God? Because if he's not in the cosmos, where is he then? He's in his word. So the idea here is this. 
This has entered the cosmos. It's on enemy territory, but it has made its way into the cosmos. And here's the thing. No matter what the cosmos does, it cannot eliminate this. The word of God continues to stand through the cosmos, and this is one of Satan's problems. He can't get rid of this in the cosmos. God has put it there, and he can't get it out of there. So what must Satan do in the cosmos to get rid of this? Yes, distort it, confuse it, malign it, attack it, bury it, uh, misinterpret it, infiltrate it. Right? You, you see all the tactics that's used so that this becomes nothing but an ancient relic that no one pays attention to. So look what it's done in the churches. It's taken the churches from preaching verse by verse, expository preaching, to being topical, let's have our best day. So that's, that's a suppression of the word of God, a suppression of the truth in the cosmos. But God has made himself available in the cosmos by his word. And if you want him, you want to seek him, you must do it through this. That's it. And this gives you the special revelation of it. Now, anything about this, let me go from, I've said this before, but it's important to understand. He guides you to this. He has left like uh, you're, you're walking in the forest and you leave breadcrumbs on the path. He has left the breadcrumbs on the path to lead you to find his word in the cosmos. And it first starts with general revelation with the concept of creation. His identity is spoken through the, the creation. You can see the eternal Godhead through the creation. That's a breadcrumb. If you see the creation, it tells you he wrote this. Continue on, and if you look at um, the inner, the uh, the inner of the person, the the conscience, the conscience has the law of God on its heart, the eternal law of God, not the Mosaic law, the eternal law of God on its heart. So every human being has this; it witnesses to them that they're guilty. And then you have providence in the fact that their lives and the things that happen in their life is not an accident, but has meaning and purpose. And then you have the other general revelation of history, particularly of Israel. History witnesses to them that man is not the center of history, but God is, and it's his story that's playing itself out. Those are the four breadcrumbs that if you respond to them, will lead you to this every time. That's how God has made people aware of how to find him. That's how to find him. And if you, use, if you think about that, there is no one without excuse. It's on people's heart, it's in the creation, it's in history, and it's in providence. Well, that means no one has an excuse. Everybody he has reached out to, to try to get them out of this cosmos, if that makes sense. Let's go on. God loves the people of the cosmos, and sent his son into the cosmos to save people out of the cosmos. So when Messiah came, remember, uh, in Bethlehem as a child, he was entering into the cosmos. He was entering in as a human being, the God-man, into our cosmos. Now, I know I, I, I shouldn't have to say this, but John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Uh, world, in that sense, means people. 
it doesn't mean the planet. I know that you say, well, why are you saying that? Because now we have so many people that are woke, they think John 3.16 is about saving the planet. God, yeah, seriously, man. Like God so loved the world, the planet, Mother Earth. Yeah, seriously, that's how they interpret that. So I know that sounds crazy that I would have to make this point, but people believe it. It's people is what he's talking about, right? I don't know how you mess that one up. Anyway, so God enters into the world to save them out of it, okay? To pull them out, to rescue them out of it. The concept of, of fishing comes to mind. So um, let me tie a few uh, metaphors together. This is why in Jesus' ministry, he told the disciples, I'm going to make you fishers of men. The fish are pulled out of the water or, or the, the sea or the ocean is the concept, okay? The seas in the Bible, the oceans, represent the, the, the peoples of the world. And so the concept of taking fish out of, of the water is the concept of taking them out of the world, you remember how many fish Jesus caught on the second draft of fish? Not the first draft, but the second draft. They, actually, they, they counted them. 153. Do you know why? There's 153 fish that got pulled into the boat. And the nets didn't break the second time. 153. That's got to mean something. Threefold measures? Okay. You got three of the still left, though. You got 50, 50, 50, but you still got three. The what now? Take care of our families? What's 153 represent? Peter's family? Okay. Here's the interesting thing. At that time, there was 153 species of fish in the Sea of Galilee at the time. Species. What does that say? He's catching everybody. Everybody. He's catching everybody. 153 represents all the species in the lake of, uh, Sea of Galilee at the time of Messiah. It represents their, their, that God is going to go after all the, the languages, tongues, tribes, all that, nations, and rescue those out of the ocean, out of the sea, out of the cosmos. Do you remember why the nets didn't break? The first time they caught the miraculous draft of fish, the nets broke. Remember that? First time, that's when he called them to full-time vocational ministry. He, they he throw it on the right side, they pull it up, the nets break. You can't hold all the fish. The second time, the nets don't break, and they contain 153 fish. What's the lesson there of the, the first net breaking and the second net not breaking? Yeah, it's theology. True. The issue is the net represents proper theology. When you first call the disciples, their theology is not straightened out. It's messed up by the rabbis. So when they're catching people, the problem that they have is they can't disciple them properly. 
So the nets break and they lose fish, right? So if you don't have proper theology, you can't disciple anybody because you will lose the fish to a cult. So the, the nets being together at the end shows that after three and a half years, the boys are trained enough to know how to disciple people that they don't lose them to Satan. So that's the idea uh, with the second net. The boys are ready now. The net's not broken. They can, they can, the, the intertwining of the net represents the intertwining of theology, which means that you have to have your theology proper, you have to have your Christology, you have to have your eschatology, your ecclesiology, soteriology, harmatology, all that has to intertwine together so that you can properly disciple somebody. So you, have, you got to know what you believe and why you believe before you even attempt to do that with somebody else. That's the concept right there. Why the right side? Right, cast it on the right side of the boat, remember? Why the right side? What's the, what's the idea of the right hand? Yeah, but in Hebraic idioms, the right hand symbolizes the position of authority and power. You will do this in my authority and power. You will rescue these people out of the cosmos by my authority and power. If you do not have Messiah's authority and power and you try to attempt attempt to rescue somebody in this cosmos, guess what Satan and all of them will attempt to do to you? They will stop you. The only reason that you can walk onto enemy territory and go after the lost people in this world is because you have authority and power in the Messiah. And you present the gospel and you present the truth in the authority of the Messiah. That creates in you no fear, even though you're on enemy territory, even though, uh, that, that, no, even though they know that you, that you shouldn't be here, they can't stop you, is the concept. And so with the authority and the power of the Messiah, you go into enemy territory, you pick up those who are lost, and you drag them back to the rescue boat, so to speak, through the gospel. That's the concept uh, of, of going into the cosmos. The only way you can be allowed into it is through the Messiah's authority. Remember what Messiah said, all authority has been given unto me, right? After the resurrection, all authority had been given to him. And because of that, you now are under the authority of the Messiah to do the work you need to do, even though you're on enemy territory. They can't mess with you as far as hurting you physically. They can't kill you unless God allows it. And so Hebrews chapter 2 prevents them from doing that. Furthermore, it prevents demons, fallen angels, from preventing, well, they can hinder you, but they can't stop you completely. Now, what do I mean by that? Satan could put hindrances up in front of you, but there's a limit to how many hindrances he puts on you. He can hinder you, but you have the authority and power to break through the hindrances if you will do so. What Satan wants to do is try to hinder you to where you will not use your authority and power to break through the hindrances. Yes, 
you have to know that by the authority of the Messiah and the power from the Messiah, you have the ability to push through hindrances. Now, everybody can push through them. Everybody can. You have the authority and power to do it. But not everybody does. Because Satan makes them so afraid that if they knock down that, that or try to push through that hindrance, that they're going to be attacked and bad consequences will come upon them, then that prevents them. So he intimidates people through fear. Through fear. If you, you mess with this hindrance, your whole life is going to come apart. Don't push through it. But your job is to push through it. Now, God, if he puts a closed door on you, will prevent you from even going any further. You get that, right? You, you're stuck. If God puts a door down, you're stuck. If Satan puts a hindrance down, you're not stuck. That means you push through. And by the way, ask any of our workers on Sunday morning how much junk they have to push through to make things happen. I mean, a lot of them could just easily throw up their hands and say, I surrender, I'm done, I can't do this anymore because every time I come, this thing doesn't work or that doesn't work or this person's messed up or whatever it might be, you know? There's twisted sisters and bitter brothers all the time, right? That, that hinder the work of God. And you have to push through those hindrances, don't you? But you can, you can actually be intimidated. There's a whole slew of people out there at home right now that wouldn't push through the hindrances and they got burned at a church or something like that, whatever, and they've never darkened the door ever since. So Satan's hindrances worked on them. And they've never come back to church because someone was, they thought rude to them or they didn't get what they wanted or something wasn't said right or whatever. And their feelings were hurt. Well, was that easy to push you over? Yeah, it was that easy to push them over. And he's hindered them and they're at home. They're never going to come back to church ever again. They're done. Not coming anymore. That's how easy it was to push over with a hindrance. What will be hindrances in your life? Have you thought about that? Do you know what the hindrances are? Will it be a good tap, flat tire? Will it be stuff like that? Maybe. Will it be like, um, I don't know, someone's rude to you? Maybe. Do you know what the number one hindrance for you will be to serve Christ that Satan will use against you? Family, number one. Your family will be the number one prohibitor of you serving Christ. End of story. It's all over the, it's all over the Gospels. Your family will hinder you. What do you mean? What do you mean my family will hinder me? Satan will use the weakness... He'll use the weaker parts of your family to come against you from doing what you need to do. He'll capitalize on weakness. So your family is only as strong as your weakest person in that family, spiritually speaking. That weakness will then be used against you to stop you. So it'll be a son, it'll be a daughter, it'll be a sibling, it'll be your mom, it'll be your dad, It'll be somebody that's actually hindering you from serving the Messiah. And you have to push through, man. You cannot let family members hold you back. Well, we got this thing going on, and we, you know, we got to get him settled, so we're just going to take a break. That's when you need to be with the body of Christ. You don't need a break from the body of Christ. You need to have encouragement and help from the body of Christ to deal with that. But that's when people split. 
I got to go deal with this. No, no, no. Or how about this one? Spouses won't let other spouses serve. Who does that? Who does that? If your spouse saying, well, I don't want you serving because, you know, I don't want you getting ahead of me or I don't want you serving without me. You just got to say, tater chip, let it rip. I'm going. <laughs> I, I'm not staying home for you because you're not up to speed where I am. I'm going to go do this for the Lord. And if you're not there, hey, you better catch up. Right? You, but seriously, it's not, it's not that conversation. That, that conversation's not happening. It's like, okay, honey. Um, well, when you feel ready to serve the Lord, you just tell me. One year goes by, two years go by, three years go by, five years go by. Well, honey, you know, we've got to raise these kids, and so you can't be doing this for the men group, and you can't be teaching a Bible study, because I need you here to teach our kids. Okay. Ten years go by, 15 years go by. They don't ever serve. They don't ever serve because somebody doesn't want the other one serving. Now think about that. Why? Why wouldn't the one want, not want the other one serving? Jealousy, maybe? Control. Oh, oh, that's a nasty word. Really? Shame? Because I feel ashamed that I don't serve, and I, I, you're going to make me convicted that you're serving and I don't serve? Maybe. See, I don't get that. But it happens. And the biggest hindrance, as Jesus said, will be your family. He gave so many parables about that. What do you think the second biggest hindrance is? You got family. Financial. Time. Time and money. Time and money. If it's to the benefit of gaining more money on a Sunday or some type of worldly advantage, the person will do it over, over serving or coming to church or whatever. If uh, the money or the advantage overweighs it, they'll do it. If they don't have time because they're so, their, their schedule is so busy with non-essential things, uh, the, they will put the, the, the spirituality on the back burner. It will be an addendum to their life. So you got family, time, and money right, right there as being the biggest hindrances to people serving the Lord. And see, all of that is, is how to manage that. You have to manage your time correctly. You have to manage your money correctly or whatever. You shouldn't have to be able to, you know, well, i got to work on Sunday to make that just a little extra or whatever. No, no. You'd actually benefit if you took a day off. It's been proven. They've looked at people who work seven days a week and, um, and versus people that take one day off. The, 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 it's absolutely miraculous. It's almost supernatural, the health of the individual versus the one who works the most. The one who works the most gets more money. There's no doubt about that. But they're not healthy and they, can't, they don't live long versus the one that takes one day off. I wonder why. I don't know. I don't know. Somewhere in a book I read. The further away from the cosmos we get, the more it hates us back. 
And when the churches look like the cosmos and act like the cosmos and teach like the cosmos, they get the cosmos' applause. And Karen, I dare any one of them to take me on theologically. Any one of them. They know they can't back up what they're saying. They know. So instead of talking theology, let's just attack personally. I know how it's played. I know the game. Questions? Y'all good? Got one over there? Paul, come on over here. Brett? And we'll take a break here pretty soon. I just wanted to say I'm pretty sure somewhere in the Bible there's a prayer that, Lord, don't make me too rich that I might sin against you. Keep me just where I need to be or don't make me too poor. Yeah, that's in the Proverbs. And, yeah, keep me just, you know, don't make me too rich, don't make me too poor where I'll steal bread. Um, but just give me my daily provision is the idea. That actually was incorporated in the Lord's Prayer. Give us our day our daily bread. Yeah, so, yeah, you're, you're totally right on that one. Yeah, Dennis. Hi, Pastor. It's actually a, a statement that you were talking about earlier. Forbes, uh, Forbes Fortune magazine came out with a study that was talking about the American dream. Um, go to school, get a good education, work hard, save your money. And then they talked about the reality of that. And the reality of that is 98% of all people at the age of 68 are still working dead or broke. That was the reality they had. Bingo. I can tell you this, man. If I was going to do it all over again, I'd be a pool guy. Dude, my pool guy rakes it in, and he's done by noon. And he's, he's like, he clears 100000 off cleaning pools, and he's done by noon. I'm like, That's, that was the guy who was smart. Dude. And I, I went to college and all that, and he just went and he's making 100, over 100000 and, and off at noon. Wow, but yeah, that, that whole breaks that breaks the whole thing when you see guys like that. Um, and again, I'm not saying that he's living a spiritual life anyway. You know, don't get me wrong. Um, but I'm saying is compared to what they tell you you need to do versus what really is happening, the guy doing the pool is making more than someone went to a four year university. They can't find a job. I don't get it. But I, I, this is part of the problem of, of the system. The system tells you what to think and, and thinks that this, is be, this will be successful.